0: Welcome to Home Health 360, a podcast presented by Eliacare. I'm your host, Jeff Howell, and this is the show about learning from the best in home health care from around the globe. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another edition of Home Health 360, where we speak with home care and home health leaders from across the globe. Dr. Katie Lance is a health care executive with over two decades of success building programs for community-based services. She uses her ClinOps experience along with her national network of systems, health plans, and funders and investors to custom design clinical programs. She most recently served PCMA, a growing geriatric and palliative medical practice, as chief strategy officer and Aspire Health as chief clinical officer from startup through the acquisition by Anthem. Her firm, TopSight Partners is a boutique clinical design advisory partner that supports multi-stage organizations hoping to create, evolve, and scale clinical services. And you can find out more at TopsiteFirm.com. that's T-O-P-S-I-G-H-T-F-I-R-M.com. And she's also the co-author of a position paper called Transforming Serious Illness and End-of-Life Care in America. So if you just Google transforming serious illness and end-of-life care in America, I added Katie's name as well. So that's K-A-T-Y-L-A-N-Z. You're able to download, I think it's a 17-page PDF that I read before this episode. I thought it was super informative. Katie, thank you for spending time with us today. I'm thrilled to be here. Thank you, Jeff. So this position paper, this is going to be a bit of a deep dive for us today. Give us some background on when and why you co-authored it.
1: Oh, gosh. I'll just, I think a little on me might help understand the background, but I've been in this field an industry of hospice and palliative care and really geriatric medicine for over 20 years. Something that bugged me, let's put it that way, is that we were having a hard time proving the value of what we do and the interdisciplinary approaches and how we have significant cost avoidance and also may need because of the way that the benefit was designed back in 1985 and the way that our patients have changed over the course of the last um, umpteen, 20, 30 years. How many years is that now? Jeez, I don't even know. (laughs) But we now make people live longer and better with more quality of life and so how do we demonstrate the value of that? And so this particular piece, I'm on the board at the National Hospice and Palliative Care Organization, and we were talking about similar things. How do we demonstrate the value and also showcase to the industry, be it home health, anyone caring for people in the serious illness realm, how do we showcase the value of what we do through the unit economics and the way right. other people are doing it, maybe in the private sector, maybe in the government and what the demonstrations are done and how do we get paid for what we do by demonstrating our value. Yeah. So that's why I'm interested in it because I want more people to have it, Jeff.
0: Yeah, sure. <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah,
0: The paper talks about how valuable the hospice model is, but it does need to adapt to these diversifying needs of patients and caregivers. What would you identify as needs that are actually new for both patients and caregivers these days?
1: Needs that are new. We are able to identify people who are likely mortality data and risk stratification. We're able to identify people who are likely to pass away in the next year more readily today mm-hmm. than we were even 10 years ago. Um, there's algorithm support, there's companies that build data, data science and artificial intelligence to help us clinicians figure things out. What's great about that is that we now can have people utilizing the benefit longer. Sometimes the issue is that as a group, we don't necessarily have the capabilities to anticipate a lot of the crises that might happen and create plans for those when people aren't dying, that they might have still seeking some curative therapies and or might be responsive to some curative therapies. And so I think what's needing to adapt a little bit is our ability to anticipate things and have better conversations about what people want, not just medically, also financially, legally, spiritually. And really, and in fact, I think the benefit itself might be a little bit over medicalized as the nurse practitioner. Mm -hmm. And I think sometimes people further upstream might need more anticipation and that leads to less stress, more confidence for families and more days at home, which the data says people want. And so I think that's what we're seeing in terms of what needs to adapt. And I also think we need more personal care services in order to stay at home people don't always need a nurse. They need a caregiver. And we need government benefits to support that and or we need personal care benefits that support that. And if those are what is bending the needle and allowing people to be more comfortable at home, I'm hopeful to see that.
0: Yeah. I've always felt like Medicare Advantage is a tip of the cap to just how important personal care is in the entire continuum of care.
1: It totally is. And it's how we maintain our dignity. And it's such a personal thing too. Just even having people in my home to help care for my kids, it's really hard to find. And so I'm hopeful to see not only the benefit change around that, but also the vocation of caregiving and or supplemental benefits to help families like other modernized countries have started to do. So that's what I'd love to see, but that's just a pipe dream.
0: (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Your position paper doesn't really see a future in fee-for-service for the hospice model. Can you give us a sense on why you feel that this model is broken and what's the better path?
1: I think we all know, and it's we hear a lot of people talking about fee-for-service as transactional medicine and and transactional services. And unfortunately, we don't just cancer when people are dying from cancer. We generally know they're doing okay and then they decline pretty rapidly. But a lot of the diseases that we die from, heart disease, lung disease, others, they They take a little bit longer and they're not a straight path. And even Alzheimer's Mm -hmm. disease could be a very long path. And so with that path, it, we have intensity of need when we need it. And then we have periods where we're doing okay. Uh And fee for service and being accountable is only transactional through those crises. It's not actually incentivized to help people out of the system. And so. I think that it's better when people assume risk, meaning, and I'm just going to break this down a little bit because nobody ever really broke it down to me. And so when people said assume risk, I was like, what does that mean? I don't want to uh-huh. be risky. From a clinician. Right. I want to live by <laughs> the standard protocols. But let's say there's $10 that the health plan pays for typical care for people, any health okay. plan. And I'm a provider group, hospice, home health, whatever it is, and I want to help assume some of the risk for my patients longitudinally, not just through that episode of care, which is fee-for-service and get paid for it, but maybe actually assume some of their needs until they die, okay? And I, that that is, we could even say their total needs, which would be total risk. So what we might say to the health plan is, okay, for that $10 that you usually spend, I want to be paid potentially, if I spend only $6, compared to usual care, which is $10, let's split the $4. Sure. And you pay me 20% of that or 50% of that savings. That might be one example of how risk sharing pools are. And so the cool thing about how that translates into business is that as a clinician, I'm more focused on the things that we just talked about. I'm more focused on anticipating crisis, making sure that people can stay home, making sure that people have their personal care needs met, that their goals of care and what they Mm. really want is established versus responding to a crisis and then coming in for home health or coming in maybe in the last three weeks of their life. And so I love this idea. The government loves this idea. We're seeing the trends with ACO Reach. We're seeing trends with Medicare Advantage Carbons and even companies like I helped work for, Aspire Health and others. That are assuming risk with a lot of the Medicare Advantage plans. So I, I, we also know that there could potentially be the carbon. And when people say, what is a carbon? And right now, people, when people are dying on Medicare Advantage, which about over 50% of Americans are on Medicare Advantage, once they go on to hospice, they flip onto the traditional Medicare benefit. But okay. in the event that Medicare Advantage started assuming some of that care until people die, That would really change the landscape for the national benefit as it currently stands. And I think that the future for the hospice service model is not just that it's transactional and waiting for people to really get to this point Mm -hmm. of decline. I'd love to see the benefit involved into something that's more dose escalated and anticipatory and more like a serious illness population management um, platform or benefit that escalates up when people are sick and maybe down a little bit when they don't okay. have as many needs. And that would really attend to the needs of most Americans and how they are chronically living and dying in America today.
0: I've never thought of value-based hospice care because it's really the last six months of life, right? Where I've always mm-hmm. just equated value-based with home health. And it's, it strikes me as like fee-for-service, really, there's no incentive at all. It's like being an hourly employee, right? Someone needs some care. We're going to go deliver that care. We're going to get our fee. And there's no incentive for any innovation. Providers are that are competent in communicating value, especially through KPIs, would be best positioned to enter value-based arrangements. Give us a sense on how sophisticated is the reporting out there right now at the top end And then what does it look like for the average provider?
1: You know that it's, it, the data is good. I think that we are now evolving to a better platform for providers to be able to readily utilize that information and do something about it. Mm-hmm. Data is nothing if you can't manipulate it into a in a workflow that works for providers out in the field sure. and that they're incented to not have to take more time to do things on top of what they're already doing. And the actual tools that are out there on the top end, risk stratification is pretty darn good. You can identify people's risk for hospitalization people's risk for mortality, functional decline, all co- days at how likely are they be able to stay home. That's great. So then what, how do we translate that into things that are taskable and actionable into the systems that people utilize? I think that we're also seeing a lot of great information that comes from claims data, right? So claims is doing, what it, whenever somebody submits a bill, we can see, what, be it for a, a wheelchair or for... I don't know. Let's say COPD. We can look and see. Okay, they have COPD, and now they're wheelchair bound. Okay, something they've got a significant decline. But what's not happening is patient reported information as well. Mm-hmm. There are some mm-hmm. companies evolving that are bringing that in, and it's and I'm loving to see, seeing that they. Also are not as closely integrated into some of the EMR systems and the monopolies that we use between like home care, home base or lots of the larger EMR systems. But I think the, the functionality improve. What providers want out in the field is something that they don't want to have to open three dashboards. They maybe want one or two that they can work off of to plan their day. And schedules at such. But I think that right now, artificial intelligence is great and we're seeing more competition, which is good. I would love to challenge those innovators to really think about how they integrate that into the workflows of the people using them, not just home care, or I should say Mm -hmm. the home care business, or not just hospice, but population platforms that really allow Mm -hmm. us to manage people across the continuum and assume some of that risk that we talked about.
0: And it's funny how the explosion of chat GPT has really raised the bar for the entire AI space. Everyone's talking. Did you know that they went from zero to a million users in five days or something like that? Like it broke every record. I'm for not any surprised. There? Yeah.
1: <laughs> and I like believe that the post-war generation the burn the bras generation is about to burn their depends. They want their voice involved in the care. They want choices, right? I'm not surprised that it's blowing up.
0: What about the, on the hospice side of things, the, like the, there's one company that I remember, I've had them on the podcast and they talked to me about the, they can predict a death in hospice to the day with something like a 99.9% accuracy. Curious if you see And when I heard that, I thought this is the pinnacle of what the industry should be about is predicting these health events. And I'm just curious, like what you've come across that would be in that same ballpark.
1: Not a lot. I think that even the best algorithms out there in terms of prediction for hospice eligibility and or risk of mortality are somewhere between the 70 to 80% zone. Mm -hmm. Now when it people's vital signs are changing. They're completely immobile. They're no longer eating and drinking. It's a little easier to quote predict death, but it's going to be within days, maybe weeks, right? Mm -hmm. And that becomes more statistically accurate and we see those go up. But when we're talking about avoidance of crisis and comfort and confidence of families, you can't do much in those last few days as clinicians. We need mm-hmm. to be able to intervene. I'd love to be able to intervene at the time of the diagnosis. If you, your loved one is diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease, that is a terminal disease. At some uh-huh. point, they're going to stop eating and drinking if they don't die from some other acute cause. And they are going to have to make decisions about where they live and the type of care that they receive. Those decisions need to be made ahead of time while they still can't. And dose escalated as they get sicker to avoid both the expense and the suffering. So I love that. So accurate. But then, what are we going to do about it? Okay, they're dying at this uh-huh. point. But we do need to get them the the support of the hospice benefit. The I'm sorry. I'm tangentially the NORC in March this year just came out with a study, and NHPCO published it. That it was done by the University of Chicago as well. They could basically hospice contributed to 3.5 billion in savings for medicare in 2019 um while yeah. providing multiple other benefits but the re- what the study actually showed is that it's not as effective in the last few days of life it really becomes better for families and more economically the savings actually occur when you get involved 15 30 45 250 days ahead of it that's when you really see less suffering and less spending
0: Right. And that leads me into my next question is that the paper talks about the need for reducing care transitions and handoffs between different programs. And it didn't go too much into it, but I'm assuming that what you were getting at there was providing the disjointedness of the whole continuum of care. And how do you think we can achieve a state of fewer handoffs?
1: I think it's networks. There's a couple of ways. One is really aligning closely with primary care providers using these algorithms to trigger identification for people who are going to decline and creating some type of bundled network that shares in the savings when they do well. Mm -hmm. I think that's the ultimate pipe dream, right? And, And or owning services or large conglomerates that really focus on the serious illness population. It's really hard when, let's say I'm a patient and I've got my PCP who doesn't come to the home. He orders home health for me. I get it for three weeks, let's just say. And now I've got nothing. I fall, go into the hospital, and now I've got pneumonia. I get another episode of home health. Then they send me to long-term care. And then each one is a transactional fee-for-service type mm-hmm. of thing. But when we actually assume the risk and we're part of avoiding those types of things that happen to me, then, then things change. And so the pendulum is swinging back towards primary care, assuming a lot of that risk. And I'm so glad to see that. Home health, hospice, all of these services were born out of a service to the actual primary care providers. That's how we were born, as a subspecialty and or support service for people in crisis in their homes. And I am so glad to see that partnership. Rather than building providers on top of primary care, I think... That we should enhance what primary care can do through data and networks to allow people to stay at home as long as they can. Yeah.
0: Mm. Long winded answer there for you, but. Oh, I like it though. And what other trends do you see happening?
1: I'm seeing a lot of MSOs form, MSOs, managed service organizations, and what's happening, like a large primary care at risk group, let's just say like a Gen Med or a. Oak Street or Village MD, they take full risk, meaning they say to a health plan, I am gonna, if I don't save money for you by doing this population management care, I'm gonna write you a check. Okay. They're really worried about this and this population that is homebound. And so they're looking for groups that can service large portfolios of dense populations where they serve and or on the map. And I see some groups forming managed service organizations that will get those contracts with those types of provider groups and then connect and build a network of hospices, home health, personal care, you name it. And that's really cool because they're using workforce strategies that already exist in the markets where they serve. You're already seeing also as well, a lot of ACO formation and accountability. So the ACOs are driving and wanting to pick their own networks. And I'm cool with that because you know what it's going to do? It's going to improve how we perform and in in still what is a fee-for-service industry in both healthcare and hospice today.
0: Are you seeing much, are you familiar with the Burtzorg model?
1: No, it, tell me back.
0: Yeah, it. I'll probably hatchet this, but it, is Burtzorg is B U R T Z O R G, something like that, and it's I think it's a Danish care delivery model, which is really community based. <clears throat> and if you just break it, imagine every neighborhood had a primary care doctor whose clients were geographically based, and then they, you have the whole everything that you would need in one community is really there. Because the biggest challenge with home health is the geographic spreading out. And obviously, there's a caregiver shortage, but also it's exacerbated by the fact that caregivers tend to make more money when they're in buildings. And it's one logical destination for them. And one of the big challenges about delivering home care is the caregivers and nurses and clinicians that have to go from place to place However, the overwhelming demand is everyone wants to age in place and it's expensive to deliver care in buildings. Um, It really
1: is. But if you, here's the thing, if we actually completely deconstruct the benefit, it's expensive today. Yeah. And we actually give people what they need instead of this bundled thing that is guaranteed. People might not need nurses. They might actually need a social worker and a personal caregiver. They might not need a doctor. They might Mm -hmm. need a nurse. And so- with The cool thing about these contracts when you're assuming full risk is that you don't have to go by the same governance and standards that home care and or hospice requires. So, for example, Aspire Health, we built our own clinical model and we consistently mm-hmm. evolved it the whole way through to help people stay at home. The nurse practitioner was present because it was a person that we felt like was really important in the goals of care and management medication and some clinical things. But what we found over time is that people really needed social conversations and people really needed a little bit more goals of care and anticipatory planning around the hard conversations with their family about what they really want and need when they decline. If and when they decline. I think that's the cool thing about deconstructing a lot of this fee for service is that we can get really creative and then it's less expensive and it's actually what people need.
0: And I think what ties into that is what you touched on earlier was future patient enrollment driven by algorithms and networks instead of provider relationships and marketing. Uh, How much of this are you actually seeing in today's world?
1: A lot. And in fact, I don't know one risk-based company that doesn't like algorithmically look at their patients and address their needs according to the algorithm. And so what I would say is it is important. And identification of the patient is great, but then how you engage them, how you build their confidence in what you can do, that is really a hard skill. And then you also need to have, in my opinion, some physical services that go out to them. So things that are totally care management-based, in my opinion, are okay, but they're not going to bend the needle when people really get sick. And unfortunately, you're not building trust in a patient's home where they might call you in the same way that they would just having somebody over the telephone. So I think it's the combination of the AI with human services that real and it doesn't need to be a doc or a nurse practitioner or practice. Actually, I believe that those human services. It might be an EMT that comes out and checks vitals. It might be a social worker. It could yeah. be anything that you uh, allows people to build trust in the home when people are likely to decline and are in crisis.
0: The author of Sapiens talks about how AI is going to change so many professions, and and what he talks about is how. We're one of the few professions where we will benefit from algorithms to connect patients with the right kind of care, but that we probably don't live in a world where robots are going to be giving people baths. And would
1: you want that, Jeff?
0: No, who would? <laughs> and particularly the burning bras generation. I don't think they're going to adapt to that beer. Very-
1: no, we want to be clean. Yeah. I think that there's a lot of cool things that could happen though, but it's, we aren't designing a lot of the AI with the seriously ill in mind either. Yeah. So I hope to see that change. And they're the most valuable asset in America today. Mm-hmm. And listen, you're speaking to somebody who is part of this group, but. I believe, are our caregivers in America. Personal caregivers, human services. I know that the private equity and venture capital worlds don't necessarily see that yet. They're starting to. It used to be tech, right, and data, and it's easier. There's less overhead, and to your point, less windshield time driving to and from patients. But in the end, that's who's going to win, is people who are touching people and allowing them to stay home. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah, there's B2B, there's B2C, and we're really in the P2P, person-to-person kind of business. Katie, we're bumping up against our time here. I'll get you out of here on this last question. Give us a reason to be optimistic about the future of -of end-of-life care.
1: I think it's that the companies and a lot of the audience that is on this call, if you are a caregiver yourself or if you're a business owner, owning and or servicing human capital, we own that most valuable resource. You are that most valuable resource. The next few years are going to be hard as we transition from this fee-for-service modality that we're in and kind of transition to where we are thinking more about how we really care for people like we would our own loved ones and try to avoid Mm -hmm. things and keep them home. And so having that skill set, you are so valuable. And You are going to win. And that I think that's the take-home message today is, you know how to care for people. And as long as you know how to do that, you are going to have a job. You are going to have a business. Mm. Keep at it. Oh, and make friends with the networks because they're the ones that are going to decide where people go. So that's, I think that they're looking to make friends. So that's a number two on the list is that there's a reason to be excited about this is because a lot of the networks are looking for quality groups to help them figure this out. Yeah.
0: Katie, thanks for coming on today. Folks, I'm going to give you a recap here. Again, it's topsitefirm.com if you want to visit Katie's website. And her paper is Transforming Serious Illness and End-of-Life Care in America. It's the number one search result. You can find the PDF there. The number two result will actually be a YouTube video that you were in with a couple of other people as well that I was able to take a quick look at. So, Katie, thanks for coming on today, and I appreciate your time.
1: I appreciate it, Jeff. Keep at it.
0: Thank you. Home Health 360 is presented by AliaCare. First off, I want to thank our amazing guests and listeners. To get more episodes, you can go to Eliacare.com forward slash home health 360. That's spelled home health 360. Or search home health 360 on any of your favorite podcasting platforms. The easiest way to stay up to date on our new shows is to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We also have a newsletter you can sign up for on aliacare.com forward slash homehealth360 to get alerts for new shows and more valuable content from Aliacare right into your inbox. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.